Hello everyone, I'm Steve Clark and welcome aboard this BOAC flight to nostalgia. That's as far as I'm going with any cabin crew announcements. Thank you all for being here, I know we're a packed audience tonight and I'd particularly like to welcome our non-members and those that are former BOAC cabin crew uh, and, and members. So without further ado, I have a lot more to say but I'm not going to. Will you please welcome our guest speaker to talk about the heady days of BOAC. Will you please welcome Malcolm Turner. after BOAC disappeared, BOAC itself only existed for, what, 34 years, barely two generations. So many people still think that it stood for something important. Um, I, um, I worked for BOAC myself. I joined BOAC in 1970 and I worked in the cargo village at Heathrow Airport and later in reservations at Victoria Air Terminal. I left in 1974 at the time of the merger with BEA. But I grew up in a BOAC family. My father, Derek Turner, was a pilot. He flew Britannias and VC-10s. He died sadly of cancer in 1966. My mother met my father when they were both working at Whitchurch near Bristol just after the war. Um, my sister, Frances, was cabin crew for, uh, for BOAC for many, many years. She was a, a purser in the end. Um, my cousin, Liz was cabin crew on 707s and BC-10s. My auntie Kay was a stewardess on Stratocruisers just after the war. <laughs> my uncle Kevin worked in the personnel department of Imperial Airways. He eventually became the personnel director of BOAC. So I grew up, when I was a child, BOAC was part of the, the fabric of, of, of my childhood. I almost lived in a, in a BOAC world. I always remember thinking that all penguin books had a little blue stamp in the top right-hand corner of the flyleaf with a speedbird on top which said, do not remove from the aircraft. <laughs> all, the books in our, all the books in our house said that. <laughs> a few years ago, um, I became aware, and I'm sure many of you became aware, of Facebook groups, these groups of people with common interests, often quite narrow interests, who form a little group to share pictures and share stories. And of course, I've always been interested in airplanes, and I became aware that there were Facebook groups for most types of airplanes. So I joined a couple, the ones that interested me. And I was astonished to discover that there's hardly an airplane that has ever been conceived of that doesn't have a Facebook group and a group of supporters who followed it. I even got a message, um, I got a message asking if I'd like to join the Facebook group for the ATL accountant. I had some difficulty finding a picture of the accountant, but that was the best one I could find. Only one was ever built. Freddie Laker built this airplane in the late 1950s. I think it was quite a good airplane. I think he was unlucky. A few years later, Avro did the 748, which was a similar aircraft. It sold quite well, but he never sold a single and I think the one and only accountant was broken up. But this group, believe it or not, has a Facebook group with three or four hundred members who exchange <laughs> pictures and stories of the ATL accountant. And good luck to them, because 
because I suppose in a way, as long as their Facebook group continues, the, the ATL account exists. While I was looking at these groups, I kept thinking, why has nobody started a group for BOAC? There must be a lot of people like myself who used to work there or were interested. And after a year or two, I eventually thought, well, I'm going to start one. So I started a Facebook group for BOAC in no time at all. I mean, in a month or two, it had several hundred members. It now has more than 2,000 members, many of whom worked for BOAC, or flew on BOAC, or remember BOAC, and all of whom think that BOAC stood for something special. While I was posting to this group, each evening I'd spend an hour or so posting on pictures and, and, and reminiscences. One evening I was just musing, basically, pulling an idea out of the air. I did a post and I said, I've got a lot of memories of BOAC and one day, when I've got time, I ought to write a book. And immediately I should think about a hundred people contacted me and said, if you write that book, we'll buy it, go ahead and do it. So to cut a long story short, I did. I wrote a book called BOAC and the Gold Age of Flying. And what I wanted to try and do in the book was not so much tell the history of BOAC, because that's been done quite a few times. There are a number of books on BOAC's history, some very good ones. I don't think there's anything to add to that. But I wanted to write a book to try and explain or try and fathom why BOAC became iconic. And I think it was iconic. One of the questions I asked myself when I started was, was BOAC, um, was BOAC really iconic? You know, was it really, are your childhood memories tinged, um, 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 rose-tinted memories? Was it really as good as you, as you think it was? I put this picture of a Stratocruiser on the north side. Those are my earliest memories. As a child, I can remember going to see my father when he came in on a flight when BOAC Stratocruisers and Constellations used to taxi up to the north side, the central area hadn't been um, fully opened at that time. I think it's a long-term car park now. And I'd watch people walking across the tarmac as, as, as they are there. The, the departures lounge for overseas flights at that time was a sort of prefabricated building. And not long before that, it had actually been a tent. If it was raining, I remember BOAC uniform staff would come up with umbrellas and cover the heads of passengers. But it just seemed to me to be special. It was a time when people dressed to fly. And as a little boy, I was seeing people coming off an airplane who'd come from the New World, from America and Canada. And it seemed to me to be an extraordinary thing. It left a very vivid memory. I, I still think of it, those beautiful old planes, the smell of aviation fuel and gasoline, which is quite different to the smell of kerosene which you get today, the heat shimmer above the engines and just the feeling of, of the airport. So was it just my nostalgia or was there really something special about BOAC? There are two things that BOAC did which are unquestionably unique and on their own I think would make it a very special company. As everybody knows, um, in 1952 they launched the world's first passenger jet service. And that really was an epoch-making event. It literally shrank the world 
travelling distances halved overnight. And VOAC proved what many people had doubted, that jet-propelled passenger aircraft were viable and people would pay a premium to fly by jet. Tragically, as we all know, within two years, there were some terrible accidents. The comet was fatally flawed, the pressure cabin wasn't strong enough, the Comet 1s all had to be grounded, and the Comet 4, the, the much improved and redesigned Comet, didn't fly until 1958. It only just managed to beat the Boeing 707 into service. It doesn't alter the fact that BOAC made history in 1952. The other thing BOAC did is not quite so well known. They were created in 1939, at the beginning of the war. All civilian flying was um, initially stopped. And their job was a simple one, but a very difficult one. It fell to BOAC to keep Britain connected to the world, to Africa, to Asia, to Australia, to North America, despite the trials of the war. And they did that, and they did it quietly. Um, there wasn't a great deal of publicity for what for what BOAC did. The government, uh, public relations people of the day, concentrated on military operations. The British public probably didn't know that the Battle of Britain was being fought above their heads. BOAC flying boats were crossing the Atlantic. Liberators were taking delivery crews back to North America. And more importantly than that, BOAC was keeping um, keeping routes open to neutral countries, which was absolutely vital, even after 1940, when most of Europe was occupied. So there's two things I think you can say BOAC did, which earn it a place in history, and which are absolutely unique. But I think the, the mystique of BOAC and the iconic status that it has revolves around a lot more than just that. In 1964, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were the most famous couple in the world. Their affair, which had become public while they were making the film, Cleopatra, had got huge publicity. And they were both contracted to make one more film together. And that film was The VIPs. It was made in 1964. Now, for such a glamorous couple, you might think that a movie like that would be made on the Côte d'Azur in the Venetian Palazzo or something similar. But this movie was actually filmed almost entirely in the departure lounge of what is now Terminal 3 at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> it's extraordinary. This was an era in which I think only about 1% of the world's population had ever flown. And the whole business of flying and going to an airport was seen as such a glamorous thing that you could make a movie about passengers who were delayed by fog. And it was a very successful movie. It made a lot of money for the studio. The passengers, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Orson Welles, all kind of stars, were stuck in the departure lounge of Terminal 3. A BOAC 707 was parked outside, looking very glamorous, but absolutely glued to the ground in pea soup fog. It never takes off. And the whole, the whole drama plays out in an airport departure. They actually built a replica of Terminal 3 at Elstree, which I think at the time was the biggest film set that had been built in this country. But it is an example of how 
flying and airports and the whole business of transport was seen in the early 1960s and it, it was part of the mystique that surrounded BOAC at the time. This is a still from another movie that BOAC started in Out of the Clouds. I'm sure many of you have seen it. If you haven't, you really should see it. It's a wonderful movie. This was made, I think, about 1957. Again, filmed mainly at Heathrow Airport. But unusually for an airline movie, it's quite accurate. It was well researched. BOAC cooperated. Those are real BOAC uniforms that they're wearing. So did Pan American, so did BEA. So did the air traffic control people um, at London Airport. And it's simply a day in the life of an airport. Um, you've got there James Robertson Justice playing an irascible BOAC captain. Um, almost certainly, I think, based on a real BOAC captain, Captain <laughs> Jones, who was a very famous um, Stratocruiser pilot um, of that era. OP always wore his cap at a jaunty angle, just as James Robertson Justice is, is, is there. Um, and James Robertson Justice takes off in his Stratocruiser out of London and very quickly has to shut down an engine and then finds he has another engine overheating, so he has to turn around. That's not as improbable as it sounds. The, the WASP engines of the Boeing Stratocruiser were notoriously unreliable. And double engine failures were not, were not unusual. He comes back to London, and London is fog-bound, which also wasn't unusual. And at that time, um, in the late 1950s, London Airport was famous for its ground-controlled approaches, its talk-downs, which apparently they did particularly well. And James Robertson Justice is talked down through the fog. And I believe that that film sequence is, is quite accurate. That's pretty much how aircraft were talked down at the time. So that's a wonderful movie. If, if anybody hasn't seen it, can absolutely recommend it. You can get it on DVD, Out of the Clouds. Another movie, oh, the slides are starting to display properly. Another movie in the 1950s was Cone of Silence. This is another very interesting movie. If you haven't seen it, I can recommend it. Not quite as good as Out of the Clouds, but it's based on the, crom uh, the comet Groundstorm instance. The early Comet 1 had a problem that it was possible to actually stall the airplane on the ground, which meant that it, it never left the air, and that actually uh, never left the ground. That actually caused a, co a couple of accidents. A book was written um, by William Beatty, a BOAC pilot of, of the day. And this film, Cone of Silence, was based on it. Quite a good, quite a good film, not quite as accurate as, as um, um, not quite as accurate as Out of the Clouds, but a very good film. The comet in the film is played by an Avro Ashton, a real Avro Ashton, on the ground. But the flying scenes, they used a model, which is rather unconvincing. But again, it's, it's part of the mystique that surrounded the OEC, part of the reason, I think, that it became an iconic airline. That's Judy Christie from the film Darling, which was a huge film at the time. She was filmed um, leaving Heathrow, and of course there were lots of BOAC airplanes in a whole series of, of, of shots. The book I wrote isn't a book of history, and I don't want to spend too much time on history because, as I mentioned before, that's been done. 
But you can't write about BOAC without having some knowledge of, of, of how it came into being. So there's a little bit of history. This is a very informed audience. I know most of you probably know that the world's first international scheduled flight left from Hounslow Heath in 1919. It was a converted to Havilland Fort. Look at that. It really is a conversion, isn't it? That's the first World War bomber that's had what looks like a sort of canvas hood put on top. Sliding windows. I love that. I love the idea of an airplane where you slide the window and open when you want to. There's a very natty looking gentleman in a Homburg hat peering out of the window. I don't know if he's the reporter from the Evening Standard that went on that flight, but it made history. A new industry had been discovered. Today we call it the airline industry. And it was a precursor of British Airways. It's why British Airways celebrated its 100th birthday last year in 2019. <coughs> AT&T didn't last very long. They were absorbed by Daimler Airway after just a year, I think. And Daimler Airway, in turn, in 1927, along with pretty much all the other small, underfinanced airlines that existed at the time, were amalgamated in 1927 as Imperial Airways. Imperial Airways was a fascinating airline, the precursor of, of BOAC. Unlike BOAC, Imperial Airways wasn't a state-owned corporation. It was a private company with private shareholders. It was subsidised by the government, and the deal was that the government got to put two directors on the board. But apart from that, it was pretty much an independent company, left to, 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 to run its services on a, a business-like basis, which I think on the whole it did. And its raison d'etre was a simple one. The job of Imperial Airways in the days when we still had an empire was to connect Britain to its empire. And that, of course, meant flying boats. This was at a time when many, many points in the empire didn't have land-based um, airports at all. Um, and flying boat services were developed. And if, that, if there was a beginning of a golden age of flying, I think that must have been it. Because the huge hulls of flying boats meant that passengers got a lot of space. And you could have things like promenade decks and cocktail lounges and sleeping berths and huge galleys in which food could be freshly prepared. The, the, the fares, of course, were very expensive. Flying then was for wealthy people or for government officials, but it was very luxurious. At the same time where there were land-based airports, Imperial Airways launched the wonderful Hanley Page biplanes, the HP-42 and HP-45 operated out of Croydon Airport. I love this painting. Look at these houses underneath. It looks like a brand new estate has been built. Very nice looking houses with lovely big gardens. Imagine you could be working in one of those gardens and every few minutes you could look up at a wonderful handy page biplane flying, flying over your head, probably no more than 100 feet up. I imagine the houses are still there, Croydon Airport, unfortunately disappeared a long time ago. That's um, an HP-42 at Sharjah with a very impressive guard. I'm not sure what the risk was, but the airplane appears to be very thoroughly guarded. And there are three guys working on an engine, which I imagine happened quite often as well too. 
That's the, um, the Maharaja of Jodhpur. And you can see he's wearing Jodhpurs, which he invented. He was quite a notable um, airman himself. I think he broke quite a few records as a pilot. He opened the first airport in, in um, Jodhpur. He built the Randas Great Palace of India, which today is, is a hotel. He was very wealthy, and he was a tremendous enthusiast for flying. And when he was in London with his family and his entourage, he used to charter an HP-42 to fly him and his friends over London, and he could have an airborne cocktail party. <laughs> Wonderful. And that's just before one of those flights. That's an early um, short flying jet. The, when Imperial Airways was formed, all they had was two small supermarine flying boats that only sat, I think, about five or six passengers, had very short range, couldn't get much further than France or the Channel Islands. The BOAC needed to find somebody who could build a substantially bigger flying boat with a better range. And the job fell to Shorts. They built the Calcutta range of flying boats, the Kent, and then finally the Empire-class flying boats, which were the mainstay of Imperial Airways for a long, long time. And with these flying boats, Imperial Airways could start to fly the long-haul routes to Africa, Asia, and Australasia. That's Sir Alan Cobham. Um, he, um, the great Sir Alan Cobham, the pioneering, record-breaking pilot. Sadly, his company quite recently was, was sold to the United States, which I think is a pity. But in those days, he pioneered and discovered and mapped out many of the routes for Imperial Airways. Um, some of them were a tremendous challenge. Um, one of the most difficult routes was Cairo to Basra. It is over featureless desert. There was practically nothing for pilots or navigators to identify on the ground. And Imperial Airways overcame the problem by digging a 400 mile long furrow across the desert. <laughs> Absolutely Probably the longest furrow that's ever been ploughed in history. It gives you an idea of, of the importance of flying at the time and what they were prepared to do. And the pilots got from Cairo to Basra by following the furrow. There's one of the uh, wonderful Empire flying boats. These are these came into service in the 1930s, and as you can see, the cavernous hull contains, well, look at the flight deck, that in itself is enormous. Um, you've got cocktail lounges, you've got a huge galley where chefs could prepare fresh lobster and cook meals from scratch. They were very luxurious. Um, they had huge windows, you've got a wonderful view. Um, you, they went quite low, so if you were flying over the African savannah and there was a migration of animals going on, your pilot could go down low and circle above them, or circle above the Victoria Falls, and you could sit in a very comfortable seat looking out of the picture window while a steward served your favourite cocktail. It was a very luxurious way to travel. Um, and you didn't go anywhere at night. Flying boats couldn't safely take off or land on water at night. So each evening you would land in probably a river estuary or an inland lake and all the passengers would be taken to the best hotel in town, the Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo or the Peninsula in Hong Kong, 
and that was all included in, um, in your fare. Um, Ross Stainton, who was um, chief executive of BOAC um, at the time of, of, of uh, the merger and in the early days of British Airways, had been a management trainee at the time in Cairo. One of his jobs was each morning to go around all the night spots and hot spots, and that included the classier brothels, and pick up any passengers who forgot that their flight was, was, was taking off um, that morning. Um, and round them up, and in those days the passengers were so, um, were so important that the captain would obligingly wait until all the passengers had been assembled before you went to your next destination. You were going from in those days, I suppose, London to Cape Town, I think in about 12, 12 days, which sounds like a long time to us, but the Union Castle Line, which was the only other way to go, and the fastest way to go by sea, I think then took about three weeks, so it was, it was substantially faster. But of course, the airlines Imperial were competing in the shipping lines. They were carrying passengers who were used to a very high standard of service, and an equivalent level of service was given, was given on the flying routes. Um, there's the wonderful Speedbird. Um, uh, the Speedbird. The Speedbird became I think, arguably, the most recognized airline logo in the world. I put this in my book and a few people wrote to me afterwards and said, oh no, the Pan American logo was much more widely recognized than the Speedbird. I think in America that's probably true. In Europe it may be true. But I think in Africa, Asia and Australasia, the Speedbird undoubtedly was more widely recognized. I, th I think it was the most recognized airline logo there ever has been, and of course it's still recognized today. Just recently, for the centenary, British Airways painted a 747 in the wonderful blue and gold livery with the speedbird on the tail, and that airplane seems to attract attention everywhere that it goes. It's photographed and filmed everywhere, and people still recognize, still recognize the Speedbird, designed I think in 1927, if I remember rightly. Initially it was just used on baggage tags and posters, but by the time of the Second World War, during the war the, the aircraft obviously had to be painted in, in camouflage, but most of them had a Speedbird on the nose. It began to be used on the aircraft from that time. Imperial Airways posters were works of art. It was the policy of Imperial, literally, to hire the best artists, the best advertising people, the most creative minds of the era, and those posters to this day, where originals have survived, still sell for a huge amount of money. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Isn't that just the most beautiful um, painting? Absolutely. Gorgeous, a work of art, um, work of art in itself. September 1938, that by the way is a British Airways Lockheed Electra in the background. British Airways was one of the two companies that was merged with Imperial Airways to form BOEC in 1939. In September 1938, Neville Chamberlain famously um, flew to Munich several times to meet Hitler came back with his agreement, announced peace in our times. That's 
Eston Airport. I think that was the biggest thing that ever happened at Eston Airport, the arrival of um, Neville Chamberlain. But sadly, it wasn't peace in our times. Within a year, war had broken out. That is um, Lord Reith. Lord Reith, of course, was the first Director General of the BBC. He created the BBC. Um, uh, he was a formidable, stern figure um, who created the BBC in his own image. But by 1940, I'm sorry, by 1939, he'd fallen out with the government and I think got pushed out of the BBC. In his own memoirs, he claimed that it was all voluntary, that he went of his own accord. But I suspect it wasn't. Um, and in order that he went quietly, he was offered another job, and that job was the chairman of Imperial Airways. He wasn't the chairman of Imperial Airways for very long, only a matter of months, because Chamberlain, who was still Prime Minister, gave him a job in his government. I think he made him Minister of Information or something like that. But Reith had insisted that the BBC should always be um, state-funded, state-owned, and protected from competition. And when he took over Imperial Airways, he insisted upon the same thing, that Imperial Airways should be wholly state-owned, um, that no competition should be allowed, and it should be run as a public service and not as a commercial enterprise. The one thing he did do was that he invented a new name. He came up with the name the British Overseas Airways Corporation, BOAC, um, which stuck, and very shortly after that, he was on his way. But BOAC had become, thanks to Reith, a wholly state-owned corporation, 100% owned by government. It was the policy of the government for many years that BOAC and later BEA should be protected from competition. And because of their structure, they couldn't even borrow money from private banks. They could only raise money from the government. And I think that decision, which, which was imposed by Reef, actually hamstrung BOAC quite a lot. I don't think a wholly state-owned corporation really was the ideal vehicle. I think the way that Imperial Airways was when he joined it was better. It was a private company with private shareholders. It got a subsidy from the government to fly essential services, which it needed, because many of the destinations it flew to, it couldn't have made a profit on. But all the government required in return was two seats on board. That changed very substantially um, under Lord Reef. That's one of the jobs that BOAC did during the war that not many people knew about. The return ferry service. They had liberators which flew from Prestwick in Scotland to Montreal in Canada and returned the crews who at the time were delivering thousands of American and Canadian built aircraft to Britain. That's the horseshoe. Now this really is extraordinary, I think, absolutely remarkable. BOSC's during job during the war was to keep air communication open to all those points in Africa, Asia, and Australasia. It's called the horseshoe for the obvious reason that it is roughly a horseshoe. It was flown by Imperial Airways um, and Qantas, and those flights operated throughout the war despite enormous difficulties and kept all those places connected by air. But of course, 
to get from the UK to any point where you could join um, the, the horseshoe route was another problem. Um, by after 1940, almost the whole of continental Europe was either occupied by the Nazis or under the influence of the Nazis. So it was a big problem to get to Cairo. When war broke out, KLM had had a number of DC-3s that were on the ground in England, which the British government um, impounded. And eventually, with the permission of the Dutch government in exile, they took over those DC-3s with the KLM crews, and they operated them from Whitchurch in Bristol to Lisbon. Portugal was neutral, and Lisbon was a very important point um, because it was one of the few places in continental Europe where civilian aircraft could land. It had to be done by civilian aircraft with civilian pilots um, because it was a neutral country. The RAF couldn't have done that. And the DC-3s with KLM pilots kept that service open to Portela throughout, throughout the war. They paid a very high price for it. Several DC-3s were shot down. One in particular, this one, Ibis, um, was shot down by eight German Ju-88 fighters. And the film star Leslie Howard was on board. He was one of them, um, one of those who, who lost their lives. The same airplane, you really do have to take your hat off to these guys. The same airplane had been attacked by any 110s twice before badly shot up twice before. Each time it had got back to Portella, it had been repaired, and the same pilots had happily got back in it and started flying it backwards and forwards to Whitchurch uh, again. And then finally, June 1943, a large squadron of JU-88s caught them and shot them down, and they were all killed. It caused a scandal at the time, because the Germans were not supposed to shoot down civilian airliners. After the war, they found some of the pilots and interviewed them. And the story they told was that they were actually looking for a U-boat that was lost. Their job was to escort it back to Brest in France. They saw the DC-3 at a distance and in hazy visibility. They thought it was a military aircraft. I'm not sure that that's really a very convincing story. I imagine they probably had to get quite close to shot it down, shoot it down. They probably knew quite well what, what they were doing. But there you are. It makes the point that BOAC and, of course, the KLM pilots took a huge risk, and many of them paid the ultimate price. From Portello, once you got there, other flights, other BOAC flights, took you to Gibraltar, then to Malta, and then finally from Malta to Cairo, and from Cairo you could connect to the Horseshoe Route. The Horseshoe Route stayed open throughout the war, despite enormous risks. And when the Germans attacked Malta, Malta became on <coughs> excuse me, became unavailable, they found another route through through Africa. But they kept it open throughout the war. Now, throughout the war, BOEC had to operate with the most extraordinary mix and match fleet. They had a lot of really quite obsolete airliners that they'd inherited from the pre-war period. <coughs> And they were given various military aircraft that had been civilianized in the of Congress. Very often, the civilianization amounted to no more than removing the guns. That was about as far as it, as, as, as it, as it went. But one superb airplane they were given was the de Havilland Mosquito. And this is an extraordinary story. 
One of the neutral routes that they were tasked with taking over was to Stockholm, um, um, because um, uh, um, uh, was to Stockholm, and they had and Sweden, of course, was was neutral, and they tried all sorts of aircraft, Lockheed Electras, I think, Lockheed Hudsons, but they were all too slow. The Germans, once the um, uh, once the KLM flight had been shot down. There was clearly a risk that these aircraft would be shot down too. And the Swedes had had a DC-3 shot down by the Germans. So somebody came up with the idea of giving BOAC, a civilian airline, the Mosquito, which could climb to almost 40,000 feet, they were specially lightened, um, and could get up higher than any um, German fighter could, could get to, and was faster than any German fighter. The mosquitoes flew from Lucas in Scotland to Stockholm throughout the war. They, in Stockholm, they brought back high-quality ball bearings that the Swedes made that were needed for the, for the war effort. And believe it or not, they brought back passengers as well. In the Bombay, um, there's a, a mosquito crew at Lucas being briefed by the RAF. Looking very cheerful, given the risks they're about to take. They look, look very relaxed. Interesting, it's a BOAC uniform, but if you look, you can see they still have Imperial Airways wings on their, on their uniforms. It's a, it looks like it's a kind of hybrid uniform. There's a, um, a mosquito just about to take off from the <coughs> And there's a passenger in a BOAC mosquito. <laughs> if you were lucky enough to be a passenger, you were given a parachute, a flask of coffee and some blankets, and you were put in the bomb bag. <laughs> people were brought back, um, very important people, from Stockholm to Scotland that way, regularly. Um, probably the most important passenger who ever came back by that route was Niels Bohr. He was a very important Danish scientist. When it became clear that the Germans were going to arrest him and try and force him to work on their nuclear program, it was decided to get into the UK as fast as they could. He was put in the Bombay of a mosquito, um, but um, he'd been told, you were given an oxygen mask and you were told that after a certain time, they had to climb very high to get over Norway. Um, he forgot to put his oxygen mask on and passed out. And the pilot, who heard nothing for a long time, guessed what had happened. And as soon as he was clear of Norway, he descended more or less to sea level. Um, and Bohr woke up, which was, which was just as well, because the pilot hadn't been on, on the ball, he'd have died of, of asphyxia. But he got back to England um, and survived for the rest of the war. There's a mosquito. That's Captain Wilkins, one of the well-known pilots who flew the mosquito. He and his radio operator were later killed. The Germans never succeeded in shooting down um, uh, one of BOAC's mosquitoes. But a number crashed. They had to fly in incredibly difficult conditions. Um, they didn't even carry a navigator. They had a radio operator, so I assume it was, was dead reckoning navigation. And I think Wilkins um, hit a hill coming back to Lucas one night and was killed. This radio operator was killed. But there he is with a passenger who's, who's just arrived in the Bombay looking, looking suitably relieved. <laughs> The other wonderful airplane that they managed to get was the Boeing 314 flying boat, the huge flying boats that had been built for 
Pan American, their clipper flying boats. Absolutely enormous. The OAC didn't really have an airplane that could get across the Atlantic. And part of their job during the war, the Liberators went from Presquick, but they had to make a series of stops en route. Part of their job during the war was to keep Britain connected to the USA and Canada. And these huge Boeing flying boats could do it. Um, they were turned down. They applied for they applied for US dollars to the government. The government said no. And then Harold Balfour, who was a junior minister, off his own bat, approved the purchase without the consent of, of the cabinet. Churchill was absolutely furious. There was a huge row, but the order wasn't cancelled. And BOAC got these three magnificent flying boats, which did very good service throughout the war. But Churchill was later a convert to these flying boats. When he, um, when he went um, the first time to meet President Roosevelt in Washington to try and persuade the Americans to support Britain during the war, the battleship of the, the Prince of Wales took him to the port of Baltimore across the Atlantic. And while he was in Baltimore, he heard that one of these Boeing 314s, BOAC 314, was in Baltimore, and he went down to see it, and he met its captain, John Kelly Rogers, and asked him quite casually, apparently, could this flying boat take him back to England via Bermuda? And Kelly said, yes, it could. And Churchill immediately said, Fine, we'll do it then. We'll go back to, we won't go back on the principles, we'll go back on your climber. The 314 had to be specially lightened um, for the journey. But they did it. Churchill took his entire entourage with him. All the most senior officers of the British military were on board this climber. He fancied himself as a bit of a pilot and had a go at the controls on the way. Um, the flight to Bermuda was, was uneventful, but when they flew um, from Bermuda to Plymouth, there was a problem. The winds were not as forecast, they ended up on a track that was further south than they'd anticipated, and they got a bit worried. They got close to the coast of occupied France, they maintained radio silence, headed for Plymouth as fast as they could. But they were arriving in Plymouth on an unusual track. And Churchill recalled in his, his memoirs that I think it was eight hurricanes were scrambled in order to shoot the aircraft down. But he recorded, thankfully, they failed in their task. <laughs> and, uh, Kenny Rogers apparently said to Churchill afterwards, I was never so relieved as when I landed you safely in Plymouth. They became friends. Um, Churchill used Kelly Rogers as his personal pilot for all his transatlantic flights after that. So there he is flying the Boeing 314. These are some of the aircraft that BOEC had to work with just after the war. Initially, they were not allowed to spend US dollars on American-built aircraft, but the aircraft that they had inherited or were given were really totally inadequate. Things like the Avro Lancastrian, which was simply a converted Lancaster bomber, with passengers sitting where the bomb bay would be. It was extremely uncomfortable. Passengers, by the way, went from London to Auckland in those Lancastrians, which took about five days. But finally, I think in about 46, they got permission to buy some constellations. There's a constellation on the left. And not long after that, 
the Stratocruiser, the wonderful um, double-decked Stratocruiser based on the B-29, where they were able to offer for a while flying boat-style luxury. The Stratocruiser had sleeping berths, it had a downstairs cocktail lounge. Ian Fleming, the author who wrote the James Bond books, um, loved the Stratocruisers. He had a house in Jamaica. He used to fly there on BOAC Stratocruisers. And in his memoir, he decides, he, he describes the country house breakfast that was so, how you were woken in the morning from your sleeping berth. And your steward would take you down to the downstairs lounge and serve a, a, a beautifully cooked um, uh, country house breakfast. And he didn't like the jets. He disliked the comet that came out. He said it got to America far too quickly. <laughs> far, too many, far too many people on it. Down below you've got the Argonaut. The Argonaut was um, a Canadian built, uh, well it was actually a DC-4, but it was built by Canadair um, and had um, Rolls-Royce Merlin engines. It was pressurized, it was fast. They got permission to, to, to buy those. They were faster and more reliable than, than the other aircraft um, the BMC had. Um, they tended to be used on the Empire routes, whereas the Stratocruisers and Constellations were used on the Atlantic, where of course they had to compete with um, Pan American who were, who were flying the same aircraft. Ah, here we have Lord Brabazon and Tara, the formidable Lord Brabazon. One area where the British government did show a lot of foresight was they anticipated quite early in the war, as early as 1942, that there was going to be a problem with airliners after the war. Throughout the war, British aircraft manufacturers were told to concentrate exclusively on military combat aircraft and transport aircraft such as the DC-3 and the Liberators were bought from the United States or bought under, under land lease. But Churchill formed a committee with Brabazon, who knew, and told Brabazon to look into what kind of airliners we would need after the war. After the First World War, there had been a problem. Um, thousands of aircraft were built during the First World War. As soon as the armistice was signed, all the orders were cancelled. And a lot of aircraft manufacturers, including the legendary Sopwith, simply went bankrupt. But Sopwith had to rebrand themselves um, as Hawker because Tommy Sopwith was so embarrassed that the name, the company with his name on it had gone bust. And they wanted to avoid that happening again. So Brabazon formed a committee to look at um, the kind of airliners that we would need after the war. And the committee had the power to delegate certain British aircraft manufacturers to start designing civilian airliners during the war. One of the members of that committee was Sir Geoffrey de Havilland. And he very early on started pushing the committee for a passenger jet. At first he met a lot of resistance. The view at the time was um, Frank Whittle had, had been testing his jet engine since 1937, although it took the government a long time to recognize the value of the jet. Jet fighters didn't go into service with the RAF until the war was nearly over. But the attitude at the time was that jet engines had no, um, uh, no use in civilian aircraft at all. They were too noisy, too thirsty, it couldn't be done. But de Havilland insisted at an early, uh, at an early stage that there ought to be um, a project to develop 
a passenger jet that had transatlantic range. John was initially given to Anthony Page, they got nowhere with it. And then it was passed to de Havilland. And throughout the war, de Havilland began work on their comet jet airline, thanks in part to Lord Brabazon of Tara. There she is, the Comet 1 prototype. Flew for the first time in 1949, John Cunningham, Cat's Eyes Cunningham, the famous war ace of the controls, and flew um, before the public at the 1949 um, Farnborough Air Show. It immediately, the British media got behind it, um, and the British public um, uh, got behind it too. It was probably, with the possible exception of Concorde, the most publicised airliner there has ever been um, outside America. And it was fantastic. Um, that's an airplane that was designed during the war, a four-engine jet aircraft that could cruise at 500 miles per hour at 40,000 feet. There she is on her first flight, 1952. That's Yoke Peter, the first production aircraft that was given to BOAC. We have a very expert audience, and I'm sure many of you will know that you know, Peter tragically was the first comet to crash from explosive decompression. But nobody knew that then. There she is on her first, the world's first, scheduled passenger flight to Johannesburg, with a lot of stops en route. There she is again, being enthusiastically waved off by the OSC stuff. I believe I tried to find a picture. Geoffrey de Havilland and John Cunningham and Ron Bishop, the designer of the comic, were there too, also waving her off. I couldn't find a picture of them, but there she goes on her first scheduled flight. Now, I'm not going to show very much video because we don't have um, much time, but I wanted to show this one. In 1952, very few people had television sets. Most people got their news either from newspapers or cinema newsrooms. This was an era where everybody <coughs> went to the cinema. The Pathé News was, was, was how British people got their visual news. And this film, To Johannesburg by Comet, ran for six minutes at the top of the Pathé News in British cinemas right across the country for months and had a huge effect. It's a wonderful film, Seb Baines, who was the top cameraman um, for Pathé News, was on board that first flight. Let's see if it works. <laughs> scheduled by British Overseas Airways Corporation to start the world's first jet passenger air service. Pathy News detailed cameraman Sid Baines to cover the historic trip. This is his story. A few minutes ago, I boarded the Comet together with other passengers making the trip to Johannesburg. Captain Philip Rendell took us off with flying officer Sharfura Like all newsreel cameramen flying his own 
Nearly 7,000 miles. 
and in austere post-war Britain, where the government was very keen to convince people that they could turn swords into plowshares, the comet was a huge <coughs> prestige project. It caught the imagination of the British people. And of course, two years later, when the comet accidents occurred, um, it had a devastating effect, not only on the aircraft industry, but um, upon public opinion, too. The effect of the comet when it went into um, service with BOAC was extraordinary. It literally cut flying times in half. Um, BOAC were flying the comet with um, load factors of 80%, which was unheard of at the time. Um, it was making a great deal of money, and de Havilland were taking orders from the comet left, right, and center. Airlines were literally queuing up, um, queuing up to buy it. That's some of the publicity they did. BOAC's advertising and publicity, like Imperial Airways, was always very good, done by the best artists of, of the day. There's the interior of the comic. That picture on the left, I think, has been colorized. I think it was originally a black and white picture. But it shows the golden age of flying. Look, people, people dressed as if they were going to church to, 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 in order to fly. In the top right corner, you can see the famous square windows. I think that picture has actually been taken on the ground. I don't think that comet is flying. And then the same lady you see down below in the loo. The comet had his and hers Jensen ladies' loos. They were huge. And the ladies' loo even had a thing like a vanity table and, and, and a makeup area. Imagine that on, on, on an aircraft today. It was, it was a very luxurious, very luxurious way to travel. There she is, GLYP, on the day that she was delivered, um, the first production comic was delivered to BOAC. Tragically, nobody knew it at the time, although the de Havilland comic was an extraordinary technical achievement using wartime technology. It was quite a remarkable airplane. The pressure cabin wasn't strong enough. That wasn't the fault of, of, of de Havilland because the fatigue life of pressurized airplanes was not understood at that time. De Havilland had meticulously tested every single pressurized component um, of the Comet before it went into production. And they tested them a number of different ways. They proof tested them, which means that they tested them to a level of strength that was more than double what they would ever be likely to experience in flight. And they tested them to destruction. They set up tests just as modern aircraft manufacturers do today, where the components were repeatedly stressed until they broke to find the point at which they failed. What nobody knew at the time was that when you proof test a piece of aluminium, the crystalline structure changes and you actually make it much stronger. You almost double its strength and its ability to, um, to, to, to resist fatigue. So when they then took the same structures and, and test them to destruction, repeatedly stressing them, they had components that were twice as strong as the components that would go into the production aircraft, which obviously hadn't been subjected to those, to those stresses. Nobody knew that. And that, um, a lot of what we know about the fatigue life of, of, of uh, aircraft structures today actually came from the comet accidents.
and I don't think it was fully understood really until the 1960s. But tragically, the comet was fatally flawed. You, you often hear that the comet crashed because it has square windows. That's not really true. The cracks did begin and end at the corners of the windows. And it's true that there was twice as much stress in the corners as there was in the rest of the windows. And it's true that had the comet had round windows, as the subsequent comets did, it wouldn't have crashed as quickly. But the comet actually crashed because the pressure cabin just wasn't strong enough. No, nobody knew that proof testing structures actually makes them stronger at the time. So these terrible accidents occurred. Yoke Peter was taking off um, from Campino Airport in Rome in 1954. She climbed to, I think, about 20,000 feet, and her captain was actually talking on the radio to a BOAC Argonaut, which was some distance ahead, asking him about the weather, and he was cut off in mid-sentence. And at the same moment, some fishermen on a trawler close to the island of Elba heard a series of loud explosions and saw burning wreckage falling from the sky. She suffered explosive decompression, broken up in the air, <coughs> and there were no survivors. All the Comet Ones were grounded, um, and BOAC and de Havilland began to, to run a series of very extensive tests. The Royal Navy were tasked with finding the wreckage, which was very difficult with the technology of the day. It had fallen into quite a deep part of the Mediterranean. But they did eventually recover most of the wreckage. <coughs> As a result of the tests that were done, a whole series of modifications were made to the comet. I think about 50 in total. And it was finally decided by the Air Safety Board and the Air Registration Board and everybody else that with these, with these um, modifications, the comet was now safe. No one suspected that the pressure cabin had failed by explosive decompression. They thought perhaps an engine had failed, there had been a catastrophic failure. Uh, they strengthened the casing around the engine, strengthened the tailpipes, did all kinds of things, put the comet back into service, and within a matter of weeks, literally a matter of weeks, another um, comet, <coughs> yoke, this one um, was on charter to South African Airways, you just see the spring bomb <coughs> on the tail. Also taking off from Rome Campino Airport, suffered the same problem. She suffered explosive decompression. The wreckage fell into the sea near Naples. Once again, all the Comet Ones were grounded, and this time they never flew again. The Comet One was finished, and all the orders that de Havilland um, had taken were cancelled. What then followed was, at the time, the most detailed aircraft investigation that anybody had ever done. Churchill himself ordered his cabinet to get to the bottom of the comet disasters once and for all. And it was decided to task the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough with finding out exactly what had happened to these comets and not to, to, to spare any expense. And Sir Arnold Hall, I don't think he was Sir Arnold there, I think he was playing Arnold Hall, who was the director of the Royal Aircraft Establishment, said very early on, and I don't think everybody agreed with him, it has to be explosive decompression, because every other possible cause of an accident like this 
was dealt with by the modifications. And he decided that they had to take an entire comet, they took several fragments, and test them in a way that never had been, no aircraft had ever been tested before. They built an enormous water tank uh, at Farnborough, submerged an entire um, BOAC comet in it. You can see pictures of it. It looks like a sort of giant winged sarcophagus. You can still see the BOAC titles on the airplane and then pump water in and out of the pressure cabin to simulate pressurization cycles to see if it would fail. The reason they use water is because water is much less compressible than air. You can simulate um, pressurized flights by simply pumping um, compressed air into the cabin and releasing it again. The problem with that is when it fails, the cabin explodes, shrapnel goes everywhere, and it's very difficult to tell afterwards where the failure actually um, occurred. But if you do it in water, because water is much less um, compressible, the damage is localized and you can see exactly where the failure occurred. They did it and eventually at roughly the same number of pressurization cycles that Peter <coughs> had experienced, a crack appeared in a port window, ran up to, I think, to an ADF window and they saw and they knew how the comets, um, comets had crashed. As a result of that, every pressurized aircraft in the world that was built after that was infinitely safer. So much of what we know about pressurized airframes today comes from those accidents. But it was a terrible blow for BOAC. The Comet 1 was finished. The Comet 4, the ultimate comet, would not come into service until four years later. Um, and um, BOAC was so reliant on the comet, they were forced to go out and buy second-hand constellations and stratocruisers at inflated prices. They went through a very rough time, really. Sir Miles Thomas, who was the chairman of BOAC at the time, I think did a very good job managing BOAC through that disaster. Um, four years later, they get the Comet 4, a much, much improved airplane. This had the Avon engine, which had twice as much thrust as the original to have in Ghost engine. It was a very strong airplane and a somewhat overpowered airplane. Pilots loved flying them. Um, I remember talking to a Dan Air pilot once who told me that one of the things they loved about the Comet was the Comet 4, that from some airport, it was so overpowered that from some airports you could climb to 2,000 feet, sometimes more within the airfield perimeter before you cross the boundary fence. And that way you could avoid doing a noise abatement takeoff because by the time you by the time you're over a built-up area you're already so high nobody nobody was going to hear it. It was a wonderful airplane. As a, as a, a child I can remember flying on comets myself. I remember the huge seats and the lovely windows and uh, yeah. It but sadly the Comet 4 came into service a matter of weeks before the Boeing 707. Um, there's a Comet 4 taking off. I think that's from Farnborough. The wheels are already in transit. They're almost um, they're half retracted. John Cunningham was, was famous for tucking the wheels away as soon as he was off the deck. So I imagine that's John Cunningham flying a BOAC Comet. But what a beautiful airplane. What a lovely, graceful aircraft it was. There's the first comet flight across the Atlantic. 
Um, Basil Smallpiece was the chairman of the BOEC by then. And de Havilland managed to deliver two comets to them, um, um, rather than the one they were expecting. And he took a decision straight away that they would do two transatlantic flights, one from London to New York, one from New York to London. Um, and again, history was made. Jet aircraft took passengers across the Atlantic for the first time, only a matter of weeks before Pan American. But they got a huge amount of publicity for it, and it was an important event. That's, um, that's Captain Tom Stoney there, who was a famous BOAC pilot. Some of you may have seen the documentary that was made in the 70s, Airline Pilot, where a young um, Stephen Radcliffe, who was then the youngest pilot in BOAC, was converted onto the VC-10 by Tom Stoney, who was still a training captain at that time. So history was made again. BOAC began to recover. In the meantime, just before they received the comet, they'd also got the Britannia. My father flew Britannias, 102 and 312 Britannias. They were wonderful airplanes, but unfortunately plagued by a lot of problems. It was a very advanced airplane for its day. It had complicated electronics. It had unusual things like gas-driven propellers. There were a lot of problems. There were a lot of problems with the Proteus engine, which suffered from icing problems, a lot of electrical problems, and the Britannia in service was actually quite unreliable, so much so that um, Smallpiece complained to the government that Bristol hadn't fulfilled their contract uh, to BOAC and tried to get his money back, although he was overruled. By the early 1960s, BOAC were already retiring, both the Comets and the Britannia. Which is that? I always think the Britannia, though, along with the Comets and the VC-10, was a very beautiful airplane. I think it looked lovely in, um, in almost all its aspects. That's the airplane that won the day, the Boeing 707. Boeing went a lot later. They were four or five years behind the Havilland. By the time they decided to go, well, they originally built um, the KC-135 tanker. Pratt & Whitney had developed the JT-3 engine for Boeing's B-52 bomber, some of which are still flying to this day. And the JT-3 had roughly twice the thrust of the de Havilland Ghost, which powered the, um, the early Comet, which meant that the 707 could be a much bigger, faster airplane with longer range. Boeing took a huge gamble because the research that um, de Havilland and Boeing and others did at the time did not indicate that the airlines really wanted a plane of that size at that time. But it was one of those classic things where once the 707 got into service, the market simply expanded. They found the passengers. The 707 went on to be a very successful airplane. Um, Boeing built, I think, just of the airline version alone, I think they built about 1,100 and thousands more of the tanker version. AWACS version. Um, and Boeing and Douglas won the jet race. Um, de Havilland only built, I think, about a total of, of, of 77 comets. And we lost the place that we had fought for just after the war. That's a sad story, but, but, but there you have it. That's um, another event in the early 1960s. I think in 61, the Oceanic Building opened, which became um, the departure terminal for most BOAC flights. At the time, 
it was a very advanced, very grand building, huge ceilings, huge windows, huge staircases. And I can remember as a little boy going from um, going from flights from um, Terminal 3. The staff travel office was in 221 building, which is where the crews report, which is just beyond what you can see there. And if the flight wasn't full, they let me straight away into the Oceanic building. And as a little boy, it seemed to me to be wonderful, exotic, really exciting. And it was never crowded. In fact, I don't remember it even being as, as, as crowded as that. Nothing like modern airport terminals at all today. Nothing like Terminal 3 departures today, which is a very different place. Now, of course, in the early 1960s, BOAC acquired another airplane, the VC-10, which was born right here where we're standing, designed and built at Brooklyn. It's a wonderful airplane. When my father came off the um, Britannia, he converted onto the VC-10, and like every other um, VC-10 pilot I ever met, he loved that airplane. He said it was a wonderful thing fly. Very interesting story. Vickers were a very good company. The Vickers Viscount was still, well until the A320 was built, it was the most successful airliner ever built outside the United States. They sold over 400 in, in the end. Um, and the VC-10 was a wonderful airplane. They were three or four years behind Boeing and they decided, and I think sensibly decided, that there was no point in trying to do another 707 or DC-8 because Boeing and Douglas already had the market for those airplanes. If they were going to do a long-range airliner, they needed to do something different. And at that time, BOAC and other airlines too um, had a problem with hot and high airfields. They had to serve a lot of airports in Africa and Asia. That a 707 or, or, or um, DC-8 wouldn't have got out of So they decided to build a large, fast airliner with good range that could do hot and high airfields. And that's why they opted to put the engines at the rear and have a clean wing. Because if you have a clean wing, you can take off roughly, take off and land roughly 10 knots slower than you can in a, uh, an, an aircraft with podded engines like, like a 707. And you don't have overhang either. A lot of these airfields in Africa and Asia, the runways were only 100 feet wide, so a 707 or DC-8 would have had its outer engines out over the dirt, ingesting all kinds of, of, of rubbish. So they went ahead with the VC-10. They'd originally, uh, had originally been a concept called the V-1000, which had been a military um, transport aircraft. But when the RAF pulled out, they um, redesigned it as, as the VC-10. It was a superb aircraft. It was um, incredibly strong, machined out of solid metal. It had um, um, no maximum um, airframe, like theoretically it could, it could keep going um, forever. Um, very safe, very comfortable. There was never an accident to a VC-10 caused by any kind of design flaw with the airplane and it proved to be very popular with passengers as well. Now around about this time this gentleman came along. This is Sir Giles Guthrie who was the chairman of BOAC in the early and mid-1960s. He was appointed on a very different basis um, from earlier chairman of BOAC. He was told from the outset that he had to run BOAC 
on a commercial basis and it had to make profits that the, the government were not going to continue to bail out BOEC when it lost money, which it, which it frequently did. And Guthrie decided two things. Julian Amory was then the Minister of Aviation. He, he was quite um, well qualified for the job, Guthrie. He was a merchant banker. His family had a merchant bank. So he knew a lot about finance and money. And he'd also been a fleet airline pilot and a test pilot. So he knew a lot about flying. He actually um, qualified and flew the VC-10 from time to time. Um, Guthrie went to Amory and said, if you want me to do this job, there are two things you have to agree to. The first thing is the huge debts that BOAC um, um, is carrying, which at the time I think was about 80 million, which doesn't sound much today, but in the early 1960s it was a colossal amount of money. He said the government's got to write that off. BOAC cannot pay that back and it will be a lame duck as long as it sits with Lost like that on its books. The government's got to be realistic and accept that that money is, is irretrievable and write it off. And the second thing you've got to do is let me cancel the order for the VC-10 because I want to operate a fleet purely of Boeing 707s because with an all 707 fleet we can make a lot, make a lot more money. That's an interesting concept. He was ahead of his time. If you think about it, the low-cost airlines today, Ryanair, EasyJet, do the same thing. They operate a single type because it's a, a, a cheap and economical um, way to run an airline. Amory went away, talked it over in cabinet, came back to Guthrie and said, right, you can, um, we will write off the 80 million. We will write off all of BOAC's debts and you will start with a clean sheet. But there's no way you can cancel the VC-10 orders. If you do that, you will destroy the VC-10 collapse the British Aircraft Corporation. We can't allow you to do that. So a, a, a debate followed and a compromise followed. In the great British tradition, a compromise was thrashed out. And the compromise was, the money was written off. Guthrie was allowed to reduce the order of VC-10s. But BOAC in the end operated a combined fleet of 707s and VC-10s in, in roughly equal numbers. That actually worked out quite well because the VC-10 did what it said on the tin. It got into the hot and high airfields very well. And it was a good airplane for the African and Asian routes. And the 707 could operate across, across the Atlantic where its higher capacity um, made more money. Unfortunately for, for Vickers and the VC-10, um, Many of the African and Asian countries that had these short and narrow runways simply rebuilt them. They simply lengthened the runways so that they could buy the 707 and DCA. And the VC-10 never really found a large market and lost the British Aircraft Corporation a huge amount of money. But it was a huge success for BOAC. BOAC really got behind the VC-10. One of the things that BOAC and Imperial Airlines had always been very good at was marketing and advertising. And they ran a series of brilliant campaigns stressing the beauty of the VC-10, the Britishness of the VC-10, the safety of the VC-10. And it worked. Passenger load factors on the VC-10, after a while, were so much higher 
um, um, than the 707, but at one stage the VC-10 was making more money for BOAC than the VC-10. I worked in reservations at that time, and I well remember how loyal passengers were to the VC-10. They quite happily wait a day or two just in order to fly on the VC-10 if, 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 if they had to. Um, on some routes, we had load factors as much as 30-40% higher on VC-10s on the 707. So in the end, the VC-10 became a profitable airplane for BOAC. Guthrie, to his credit, although the, trying to cancel the VC-10 made him very unpopular, to his credit, he did what he was hired to do. He got BOAC back into profit. He ran it very profitably, make a lot, made a lot of money. And then when his contract um, ended, he left. The government begged him to stay, but he felt he'd done the job um, <coughs> and he left. The VC-10, of course, became one of those iconic British airplanes to this day that people love, along with the Comet and, and Concorde. It has an extraordinary following. This Facebook group that I started, I soon learned that if you want to get a lot of likes very quickly, you just put a beautiful picture of the VC-10 on it. Almost immediately. People still love it to this day. Um, I was lucky enough to, to fly on VC-10s many, many times. Um, um, I went out to Nairobi, to Johannesburg. Um, absolutely fantastic. I can well remember in the... Um, my father converted onto the VC-10 in 1964. So he must have been one of the first um, uh, to do the conversion course at Shannon because it only entered service in 64. Guthrie, another thing he did was created the wonderful um, Gold Speedbird logo. When he joined, he felt that this logo was a bit too 1950s and he um, brought in the um, Gold Speedbird on the tag, which I think for my money is still one of the finest um, liveries I've ever seen. And seeing it again on a 747 today is just wonderful. There we have it. When I walked into the airport, all around Terminal 3 was a sea of blue and gold tails, which I thought at the time looked absolutely wonderful. And uh, I still think they look wonderful now. Fantastic. There's a 707 in the same livery. That's at Mastiff Airport in, in Sydney. Look at the, the cars to my eye, look very old fashioned, but the airplane still looks very modern, or at least, at least to me it does. There's the um, cabin of the VC-10. I love this picture. This is like a lot of um, BOAC publicity at the time. The cabin crew are real cabin crew. They're a real chief steward and, and a bird as they were, as they were known. The passengers I think are models, I don't think, I don't think they're real. The windows are whited out, so the airplane's probably on the ground. But it's the first class cabin of, I think, a standard VC-10, which from memory, I think, only seated about 12 people. But look at this. This is what I love. Not only is there an entire lobster on that plate, that's a bowl of caviar. There must be, what, half a pound of caviar there? And that was for 12 people. The first class in those days was very rarely full. So when you were lucky enough to go first class, which I did a couple of times, you could eat caviar until, until you were sick. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely wonderful. The OAC was always glamorous. They always carried um, um, 
stars. There's Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor again, who were part of the BOEC Mystique. It was a late in their careers, just getting off um, a 707 on one of those wonderful old BOEC buses. Ah, now, I said I wouldn't show too much video because it takes too long. I'm going to show you just one more. BOEC's advertising was always very good. This is one of the TV adverts, which I really love. It's from the early 1970s. And the point that they're trying to make in, in the advert is that BOAC was run with sort of military precision. And that's not so very far from the truth, because a lot of people in BOAC were ex-military. Many of the pilots and engineers, like my father, had come from the RAF. And also, on the ground after the war, BOAC had employed a lot of ex-army people as administrators, so it was run a bit like the army. And in this advert, which again is in the first class cabinet of VC10, you have a chief steward played by an actor who is clearly a sort of former NCO who's running the first class cabinet with military um, efficiency. And when he goes into the cockpit, you see a real BOAC pilot. The captain of this airplane is Norman Bristow, who was a well-known BOAC pilot of the time. I love the sound Here we go. Hopefully it will run properly. Next to a BAC-1, there's another wonderful British airplane, but what a contrast. The 747, I think, 747 is a fantastic airplane, but I think it brought to the end what some of us call the golden age of flying. The 747 made long-haul travel <coughs> affordable to practically everybody, which wasn't a bad thing. It, it democratized um, the airline business. Long-haul travel was no, no longer just for the rich and powerful. 
but the glamour began to disappear and the, what some of us call the golden age of flying began to ever away. but um, no discredit to the 747, a magnificent airplane and 50 years later they're still flying and one of them is still flying in that same magnificent BOAC look. Yeah. There she is again, one of the early ones in flight. And there, of course, is the airplane that BOAC never got. If you look at that sign there, it actually says, First Concorde for BOAC. Sadly, it wasn't. By the time Concorde arrived, went into commercial service, BOAC had disappeared. Um, BOAC pilots did route-proving flights on Concorde and, and played a role in Concorde. And BOAC ordered Concorde, but BOAC, sadly, never got to fly Concorde. Now, here's an interesting thing. When I was doing research for my book, I got hold of a copy of the Edwards Report, which was produced in 1961. And the reason it was produced was, and this relates to Guthrie and others, the government of the day wanted to stop subsidising BOAC and BEA once and for all. And the purpose of the Edwards Report was to try and get both companies onto a more profitable footing. And it was the Edwards Report that proposed that BOAC, BEA, and Cambrian and Northeast be merged into a single airline. But, and this is a very interesting thing, I didn't realise this until I read the report. It says in that report repeatedly and very clearly that BOAC and BEA are to retain their separate identities. What the Edwards Report mandated was that mergers would take place over the parts of the airlines that could be merged to create cost savings, such as engineering, recruiting, accounting, things like that. But they mandated that BOAC and BEA retain their separate identities. Unfortunately, in 1974, the BOAC board completely ignored that, merged all four companies into British Airways, and those four corporate identities were thrown away. In my view, I think that was a terrible mistake. I, we said before, and I think it's true, the, the Speedbird was the most recognised airline logo in the world. BOAC, as, as we've seen, had a huge presence, not only in this country, but elsewhere too. And these airlines too. Northeast Airlines, based in Newcastle in the northeast, Geordie's people in the Northeast loved the fact that they had a regional airline that flew out of Newcastle. Cambrian, based in Wales and Cardiff, the same. All these identities were thrown away. I personally think that was a huge mistake. Today, in the city, the value of brands is understood. Today, when a big public corporation, particularly one with, with a high profile, is sold and the city has to put a value on it, the value of the brand can be half the value of the company. If today the British Airways Board had tried to throw away those corporate <coughs> identities, the city would have stopped them. People in the city would have said, hang on a minute, that's half the value of those companies. If you do that, we'll cut the share price in half. They, they wouldn't have been able to do it. And British Airways themselves, um, um, today, when, when IAL took over um, Iberia and Lingus, those companies were allowed to keep their identities and that has been a success. 
I think it was a terrible mistake. I think it was one of the BOEC in particular was one of the great airline identities. And I think the fact that today an airplane is flying again in that lovely BOEC delivery and it's creating so much interest amongst people who can't possibly be old enough to remember BOEC just shows what a powerful thing it was. Very sad thing in, in my view and why they were allowed to ignore the Edwards report I don't know, but there you have it. So, I've written my book. Um, we've got some um, copies here on sale. If, if, if you would like one, you can buy it on Amazon uh, if you prefer. Um, um, we, um, we're also going to publish some other books um, on aviation. We, we seem to have discovered a niche. Um, we've got a new book coming out very shortly on the De Havilland Comet. History of that airplane, which we talked about briefly. Um, we've got, um, I've written another book um, on Brazil and entrepreneurs, the wonderful people who built up a whole series of independent airlines in Britain after the Second World War. We've got a book coming out on the Constellations, another wonderful, iconic airplane. Um, we've got a website, um, uh, Bert Ash Publishing, if you want to follow those books. And our book, BOAC in the Golden Age of Flying. So, I hope you've enjoyed this talk. I hope it's brought back some memories. I know a lot of people in the room, um, um, like me, work for BOAC or remember um, BOAC. I hope I haven't talked for, for too long. And um, before I let you go to the bar, are there any questions? Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Turner. first flight on the Comet down to Joburg. Do you have an idea how much that would have cost in today's money? I, I can't remember exactly how much it was, but it, it would have been, for the average person, it would have been several months' salaries. It was very expensive. The Comet 1 carried between 36 and 48 passengers. BOAC charged a surcharge. Um, it, it, that was an era when long-haul flying was for wealthy people or important people. It was the 747 that, that, that changed that, that democratised um, air travel. Uh, good evening, it was um, fabulous talk. Thank you. I've been in the industry all my life, although I'm sort of semi-retired. Am I correct that the uh, 70 and the 74 had Rolls-Conway engines or JT4 engines at the beginning? Um, the, the first 707s that BOAC got had the Rolls-Royce-Conway engine. And the later ones had an advanced version of the, the JT-3. And the 747, I think, had the JT-9 engine from Pratt & Whitney engine, um, or the original ones. Um, well, I worked for BA and the OEC. Um, there's one airline that you have admitted, I believe, is British South American Airways. Is there anything, any reason why you haven't mentioned them? Well, there, there, there wasn't time, and of course, they didn't exist for very long. Um, when the Labour government came in in 1945, they nationalised huge chunks of British industry, including civil aviation, the whole of civil aviation. 
they took the European services out of BOAC and formed BEA. At the same time, they formed a new airline, British South American Airways, to fly to South America, largely because I think that a number of shipping lines were prepared to invest in that um, airline. And BOAC didn't object as long as the new airline was self-financing. So Don Bennett, who had run the Pathfinders during the war, was hired as their first chairman. And they went with the Avro Tudor aircraft. Um, and that, unfortunately, was a bit of a disaster. There were a whole series of accidents with the Tudor. The Tudor was eventually grounded. Some of the early marks of Tudor never returned to service. I think the final one, the Tudor 5, flew again as a freighter and might have done some passenger work. Um, there were a lot of problems with British South American Airways. And by 1949, I think, Bennett had been sacked um, and British South American Airways was taken back into, into BOAC. One thing I do remember was that because Don Bennett had been a Pathfinder, he hired many former Pathfinder pilots. And I can well remember when I worked for BOAC, when you saw our pilots, quite a lot of our captains, had two sets of wings. They had the BOAC wings um, on their breast, and then their wartime medals. And underneath, another set of wings, which were Pathfinder wings, ex-Pathfinder pilots, who um, were very distinguished men indeed. In the mid-60s, I was a steamship engineer, and SO were flying a crew out to a tanker in Singapore. And we got off the aircraft, first time I'd ever been on the BC-10. Uh, and we landed at Singapore and went down the external staircase to be greeted by the mayor, the ambassador, the band. <laughs> Only afterwards, looking at the paper, did we find out that was the first flight of the BC-10 wow. to Singapore. Would you know when that was? Ooh. <laughs> Gosh, what a question. <laughs> BC-10 went into... Good question. <laughs> BC never went into service in 64, and Singapore was an important destination, and the standard BC-10s used to do so. So I would imagine it was quite early on. I, I would think Singapore was, I've flown to Singapore myself on BC-10. Um, I think that was probably about, about 64, yeah. Just to let know, BOAC, in fact, did go on flying in some respect. In the all the concords, as they came off the Dutch and we flew built in before the merging All our things we had one in GPOAC.
put on the pylons to simulate the weight of the engines. Otherwise, um, otherwise they would buckle. And, but but VOAC, I believe, did very well on the lease. They leased the engines to Pan Am, and it turned out to be um, quite profitable. And a year later, the pilots, the management gave in in the end and gave the pilots a substantial pay increase to fly the 747. Whenever you talk to a 747 pilot, they always tell you what an easy airplane it is to fly. But there you are. <laughs> One more question, maybe, ladies and gentlemen. Um, no, it's just that given that British Airways is well overdue a livery change, and the retro jets, especially the BLC, have been so popular and got done so well with the public, do you think it's a possibility that they could ever bring the speedboat logo back? Well, I think it would be a wonderful thing if they did, I still think it, it, it was, and to some degree, perhaps still is, the most recognised airline logo in the world. I think they made a mistake when, when, when they dropped it. The response to the 747, which has been beautifully repainted in that gorgeous blue, blue and gold um, livery, has been huge. So, so who knows? Perhaps we should ask the BA Heritage. Uh, yes, they don't know better than me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Great talk, thank you very much. My pleasure. We have to add, in fact, the thing is that Speedwell is still a call sign for international flights. Yes, yeah. But it's still very much in use. Where is that? Yeah, that's right. right. We're going to do one more question, and I think this will be the highlight of the evening. Thank you very much, Malcolm. I've been on your Facebook page for quite a long time. Oh, good. Uh, I started flying in 1965, and I flew to 2004. Gosh. Um, so I was on BC Tesla. I just wanted to say your lovely video for Albert, yeah. you thought was an actor, the steward, was in fact the steward. Oh, he was a real steward too. His name was John Mullis, and we all used to call him Major Mullis. Ladies and gentlemen, Malcolm Turner. Thank you very much.